Good to be here with you guys. Uh, my name's Jake. If I ha- haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I get to be one of the pastors here with Midtown Church and uh, just excited about our time together. We're going to continue the series that we started three weeks ago called Who Do You Think You Are? And uh, this series is really a series about our identity in Christ, as Jason referred to earlier. And we're, we're looking at the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians. And so uh, first three chapters, kind of working our way slowly through that. And so today we're going to be in chapter two. I'm really uh, looking forward to what we get to talk about this morning. But before I get into it, let's recap a little bit. So, so far in this series, what we've, we've been saying is that uh, most of us realize that like our identity is a kind of an, an important thing to have some kind of grip on, like who are we? And, and yet some, so often that question is a really hard to uh, wrap our hands on, like because it changes all the time. And oftentimes what really happens is that we try to look to things that we can do, things that we can achieve to give us an idea of who we are. And yet we saw at the very beginning of this series that that's not how God intended it. That when God created mankind, he created us. And at that time, he, get, he told us who we are. He gave us an identity. And we are supposed to receive our identity from God instead of trying to achieve an identity for ourselves. And yet we get that backwards all of the time. And, uh, but it's important that if we can know who God says we are, then that would really impact our lives because who we are ought to and really does determine what we do, how we live. And so we say, okay, well, let's start looking about uh, looking at who God says we are. And that's a big theme in the book of Ephesians. So we started there in the first chapter in Ephesians two weeks ago. We just ratted off a ton of things that Paul said and told the church in Ephesus about who we are. And if you remember, he, he starts off saying, like, if you're in Christ, which is kind of the big concept that we've been talking about and will continue to talk about for Six weeks, being in Christ, this huge, grandiose, theological, rich, deep concept that basically says that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are in Christ, meaning that you have taken the position or found actually in the person of Jesus, which means that Jesus took your spot and all the sin and blame and all the wrong things that you've done have come onto Jesus. And what we have received in turn is all of the righteousness holiness, blamelessness, acceptance of Christ received from from the Father. And when you're in Christ, then you get what Jesus rightfully gets, and he gets what you rightfully should have gotten, punishment and all of that stuff for your sins. And so it's this incredible idea that when you're in Christ, and then a a ton of identity statements flow out of this, that once you're in Christ, as we saw in uh, the beginning of Ephesians, was that like you are uh, fundamentally a saint, not a sinner. Now, yes, we still sin, but fundamentally, if you're in Christ, that's not your identity as a sinner. Your identity is a saint. Like, this is really ridiculous. And on top of that, you're blessed. You're blessed by God. Blessed by God, not based on something that you've done to earn God's blessing, but just because he's chosen to bless you in Christ. And then lots of those blessings were contained in this kind of statement that we are now his. Like, we belong to God. And, and Paul lays out, again, chapter 1, like, the reason that we belong to God is because God, if you are in Christ, God chose you. Like, he wanted you. And then that he made you holy and blameless, that he adopted you, that he redeemed you, he forgave you, that he secured you. Like, this incredible deal. So we say, who are you? Asking the, series, asking the question of the series. Who do you think you are? Well, if you're in Christ, this is how I hope you're kind of learning to answer that question. You can say, well, I'm in Christ, and in Christ, I'm a saint. I am blessed. I am, 
I belong to God. I'm his. I am wanted. I am holy and blameless. I am adopted. I'm a child of God. I am redeemed. I am sealed. I am secure in my relationship with God. That's who I am. And man, I just pray that y'all are receiving that. That that's beginning to sink into your hearts. You're beginning to embrace that and begin to see yourself as that if you have put your faith in Christ and that that's beginning to play out in how you live. Who you are determines what you do. And you say, this is who I am. I hope that you're receiving that. Then Justin talked last week, just did an awesome job. Really enjoyed getting to hear from Justin last week. But Justin was saying that one of the things that flows from who we are is that we have this ability to know God better and better. And we can really know God intimately. And we can know his power. And it is the resurrection power of Christ can be at work in our hearts, in our lives, so where we can uh, live in light of that power and like defeat sin and all this stuff. And he explained that really well. And so that's a part of what flows out of our identity. Now, what we're going to, so that's where we've been. Today, we're going to jump into chapter two. And this, uh, in this chapter, I think it's just going to highlight how amazing what we just talked about in, in the first part of uh, chapter one of this series. Because that stuff is, is absolutely amazing, but it's even more phenomenal. When, in, when you, when you uh, bring into the picture who we were before Christ, and when we can take a step back and just review like what we actually deserve, and then look at what we've gotten instead. It just makes, just makes this even more powerful. And guys, that's what Paul does. Starting in chapter 2, he, he kind of hits pause after going on and on and on. Like, uh, if you remember, the very first sermon we looked at, uh, 3 through 14, was one sentence. And then the next sermon that Justin did last week was like 14 through 21. That was also one sentence. And so it's like Paul pens really long sentences, and then he like hits pause and says, okay, let's, let's let me remind you of guys where, where you've come from. <laughs> so that's where he starts off in chapter two. So I just want to uh, jump, jump into that. But before I do, like, why don't you, if you've got a Bible with you or can pull it up on your phone or whatever, look up chapter two, Ephesians two, verse one, and uh, you can follow along with me. But as you're doing that, let me get, set you up just a little bit of context here. Because guys, this passage we're going to look at, it's, it's one of the richest passages in all the Bible. I mean, it's It's incredible. Ten verses that basically sum up the entire story of the Bible, like the major theme uh, of, of scriptures. And when you've heard, or perhaps you've said, uh, if you are a Christian, uh, like I'm saved, or you know God saved me, and stuff like that, like this passage that we're looking at right now should should be what you're referring to when you say that statement. And if you've heard that statement, you never know really what someone might mean when they say they're saved. You're going to get to see what they mean when you look at this passage, because this passage really lays out what it means to be saved. And in that, it's really the greatest rescue story of all time. Like, we love a good rescue story, right? If you think about what are the, what are the key elements of a rescue story? Well, on a real basic side, a rescue story has to have two elements, right? There has to be a need for a rescue, and there has to be a rescue, right? I don't think anyone's going to argue with me about that. That's what you have to have for rescue. But the best rescue stories they have at least four elements. Think about this with me. Like the best rescue stories, they, they contain element of like the person that's being rescued. They, they have to be like of, of great value, of great worth. And then it's like, okay, yeah, that person needs to be rescued. And then in addition to that, the, the best kind of rescue stories, the, the, um, the person needing to be rescued has to be in a very like bad 
very dire situation. The worse off the situation, the better for the rescue story, right? And then the third key element of a great rescue story is that it has to, uh, the rescuer, or the rescue at least, has to come at a great price. Like it has to come with great sacrifice. And then finally, the, the, the really the cap off a great rescue story is that the person being rescued has, has to be, like, be changed in, in like a like life-changing kind of way for the better. Then, then it's like, man, that was a great rescue story. Like, think, of, think about it. Think, try to think of a story that I'm not afraid of, um, like a movie plot that I'm not afraid of spoiling for any of y'all. Like, you should all know this story by now. If you haven't, then it's your fault. You've had a chance. So <laughs> Star Wars, right? I mean, I'm being really safe here. But you go to Star Wars, you think, man, that's a great story. Well, it has a lot of those elements, right? Like, who's, who needs to be rescued in the first Star Wars? I guess episode four, if you want to be, like, really specific. Princess Leia, right? Princess Leia. She, and she is, she is the princess. She's the leader of the uh, rebel like, uh, army or whatever. And so like, yeah, like she's, she's a big deal. She's someone who's of great worth that needs to be rescued. And then what happens? Well, she's in a horrible situation, right? It's a dire situation. Darth Vader has her. Right? That's bad. And the, and the Empire is also, by the way, building a planet or building a uh, spaceship that can destroy planets. And so that's bad as well. And so it's a dire situation. And then, and then Luke and, and Hans and all those guys, they, they go to rescue Princess Leia. And it, it's like they risk life and limb and all that. And some people die and they're trying to rescue her. And like, so the rescue comes at a great cost. And then, in addition, uh, she's changed forever as a result because we know in the, in like three movies later, she makes out with her twin brother, all right? And like, that will change you. Okay, that story doesn't have all of the great elements. It just has three of the four, but I always thought that was weird, right? It's worth pointing out. Um, anyways, moving on. But like, the story that we're looking at today, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it has all of the great elements, I mean, it's, it's the greatest rescue story ever told. In fact, many people have, I think, rightfully argued that the reason rescue stories resonate with our soul, like they often move us emotionally, is because all rescue stories are, are, are a shadow of or give us a glimpse into the greatest rescue story of all, the true rescue story, the story that we're looking at today. And, and this story, guys, it has all of those elements, plus it has two more. Like I just said, one of them. This story... It's not made up. It's, it's true. And that makes it incredibly powerful. And in addition to that, you are the one that's being rescued. And that also makes it incredibly powerful. Let me, let me just read it for us, and then we'll uh, begin to unpack it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, this is amazing. This is a really great rescue story. Okay, now, with all of the elements of the rescue story, I'm just going to use that as a a bit of our outline uh, this morning. And you can see all of the elements present in this passage, except for the very first one, it's only hinted at. Like if you, if you go to the very first part of chapter, you know, the very first line, chapter two says, and you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins. Just want to point out to this, uh, we know this, right? That in order for something to be dead, it had to first be alive. Like before there could be death, there has to be life. Well, if you will, um, just use that as kind of a jumping off point to go back to the, the beginning of the story of the Bible what you find is that there was life at the very beginning. And if you don't remember this, like if we just start where Paul starts off here in chapter 2, we, we kind of miss something. It's, it's, it's like we're walking into a movie about 20 minutes late, and so you're, you're like, okay, something tragic has happened, but I don't really get what tragic has happened until we, we go back to ba- basically Act 1 of the great meta-narrative of Scripture. And in Act 1, that's where there was life before there was death. And we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, but if you remember, like when God created mankind, when he created man, when he cre- created women. He, he created them to, to be in his image. He created us in his likeness. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 talks about how God, when he created us, he created us to be like him, to bear his image, made us in his likeness. And he repeats that over and over again. What that basically means is that when God created us, he created us to represent him. We were to mirror what he is like. Not that we can be like omnipotent or anything like that, but that we would actually in his character show the physical world what our God is like in, in his character. So that as God is perfectly loving, we were to be perfectly loving. As God is generous, we were to be generous, ca- compassionate, compassionate. That God is kind, that we were to be kind and on and on and on. That's what God created us and giving us that responsibility, actually that blessing, that identity, he said, you are the crown of all creation. You have incredible worth. You've got, you've got, a, you've got an identity that no, nothing else that I created has. You are to bear my image, reflect to the created world what I'm like. So it's, it's an amazing deal. Except if you're familiar with the story, you know what happened next, right? Adam and Eve uh, disobey God. They, don't, they didn't believe God. They, they thought their identity was something that they had to achieve instead of receive. And so when Satan comes to them and tempts them in the garden and says, hey, if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God. And instead of saying, well, God already made me like him. That's what he said. Like, right, right when we were created, you're like me. He, they said and said, no, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take of this fruit. I'm going to try to, in pride, try to become like God, not believe in God. And the one thing that God had said, don't eat of this. So if you do, you'll surely die. And they disobeyed, and they did immediately die. But not physically. I mean, that came later on. But immediately, they died spiritually. And the teaching of the Bible is that everyone, from, like for them, from that point on, and everyone else that's ever followed, has fallen under the curse of God and has been, uh, d- d- uh, been even born dead spiritually. And that all of us have the spiritual nature that we've inherited from our first parents, if you will, Adam and Eve. 
And then because of their sin, we are all natural sinners. And like that's a huge teaching of, of, of the Bible. And that's where Paul picks up in chapter 2. That's why he says, and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And guys, to be dead is, is different than just being in God's doghouse. Like when, uh, when we you know, ask uh, most, most Christians, like, what does it mean um, you know, to, 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 to need a Savior? And they say, well, we've, we've all sinned. And we've, uh, you know, uh, under the condemnation of God, and we we need a Savior that's going to forgive us of our sins, and and that's com- that's completely true. Like we're guilty before God, completely true. But it, but Paul is like pushing it to another level. It's not that we're just guilty before God, but it's also that as a result of our sin, we're actually dead. We're not just in God's doghouse. We're actually in the morgue, and like that's more severe, isn't it? Like, that's a really big deal. That's why you would start, you know, in this part, these three verses, uh, Paul really begins to lay out how dire our situation is. Why we, who had great worth, created by God, uh, are now in a situation where we really need to be rescued, where we're in a very dire, very bad situation, because we are dead. We're, we're dead spiritually. And guys, dead people, they can't save themselves because they're dead. And dead people, they don't reach out for God on their own because they're dead. In fact, Paul goes on. He, he just lists out a couple things that he says, not only are we dead, but the result of being dead, the result of being spiritually dead, is that we are now uh, also held captive by these incredibly powerful influences, forces in our, in our, in our world today. The first one he lists out is, is the world itself, our, the culture of the world. The second one is, is Satan, the devil. And then the third is by our own flesh, and that these things have incredible power over us. And the reason that I say that they hold us captive is because you see in this passage, Paul used the uh, word following uh, twice. Like he says, we're, we're following... Um, the uh, uh, let's see, the first one is uh, uh, following the course of this world, and the second one is following the prince of the power of the air. And in the, in the Greek, the word that we translate following actually has even more of a powerful uh, connotation to it. It's not just that we follow, but that we're actually ha- held captive or we're under control by. And so, like again, very dire. We are dead and we're held captive by these cra- crazy powerful forces, the world, Satan, and our own flesh. And like, just think about this for a minute. For like, with the world, like uh, the world basically in this context is meaning like our culture, like the, the, our world system. And you can best think about it as like a torrential river, like a really strong, fast-moving river with a strong undertow. And basically uh, anything that gets in that river gets carried downstream away from God. That's kind of what, what it means. And, and by how like, most people act and think and just relate, like this is just the flow of what we think is, this is the way we do things, but the way that we do things as the world is different than the way that God has told us to do things. And we get caught up in that because um, we think that it's normal. We see what the majority is doing, and so we just go along with the majority. But guys, we, we know this, right? Like our, our morality is not determined by the majority, it's determined by what God says is right, right or wrong, whether people agree with that or not. But like, it's just hard to walk against that 
whenever that's the flow of, of, the, of our culture. And uh, we know this, right? Like, if you come, if you come to faith in, in Christ and you, you decide you're going to begin walking with God, uh, some of us in this room who have done that, we, like, we know that that's hard. Like we're trying to, you're fighting upstream against the flow of, of the, the natural flow of the, of, our, our, of the culture. Like it's, it's easier to have an affair than it is to celebrate 50 years together of fidelity, isn't it? Like it's easier to build your life around your career and your own personal kingdom than it, than it is to live for the kingdom of God. It's, it's easier to spend your money on yourself, Buy that next nice thing that everyone's got, and you want that too. Then it is to be generous with your money and give freely back to God and to others. Like that's that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. That's the current of the world that we are captive to. In addition, second thing he says is we're captive to um, the one who promotes that way of living, and that is uh, Satan or, or, or the devil who is the prince, uh, the power of the air is how he refers to him here. And like I, again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but like. As a church, we, we believe that Satan is a real being, um, and I just know that's so weird. <laughs> but yet at the same time, um, if it's true, it explains so much about the way the world is, doesn't it? And so in the Bible, it, it says that Satan is a real being, and it's real clear that Satan's not a god. He doesn't have the power that God has. He's, he doesn't know everything like God knows everything. Like he, He's not a God, but he, he, he's a person that does have some power. And at right now, as Paul was writing this to the church in Ephesians, and he's still, as we're reading it today, at this day and age, uh, Satan has been given freedom to, to, to roam as, as a prince of the power of the air and to manipulate and to deceive and to influence the world. To, to not live according to how God has called us to, which is the best way to live. And he's deceived us and says, like, don't believe God, don't trust God, walk away from God. And so that's, we're held captive by him. And then the third thing is that our flesh is that third power that strongly influences how we live when we're outside of Christ. And our, our flesh is basically just, in this sense, our sinful nature. It's what we inherited from uh, the, the original sins that, uh, of Adam and Eve. And so from it, we have desi- desires in our heart, like our own hearts are working against us, walking with God because we have something in us that, that says like our, these desires and these passions of our minds, our bodies, as Paul talks about here, that causes us to want to go our own way. And all these things, we're held captive to all these things. And, and basically the picture that Paul is painting here is that we're in a very dire situation. We absolutely need rescuing. Like we can't save ourselves. We're dead. And if we weren't dead, then perhaps we could try to save ourselves, but we're captive to all these three really powerful influences. So add all that on top of each other and we're, we are in a very bad place. That's what Paul wants to see. That's where you are outside of Christ. In fact, he, he goes so far as to push it to a couple identity statements here. You'll see them in verse 2 and verse 3. The first thing he says is that we are, outside of Christ, we are sons of disobedience. And in that statement, basically he uses this real relational term, sons, to, say, to, to speak to the close relationship that we have with our leader or parent that's leading us to live this way, which is to say that just as Satan is rebellious, we have followed in his way. We have a close relationship with our, with our rebellious leader, Satan. That's a, that's a big, heavy statement, isn't it? 
And then the next statement is even heavier. It says that not only are we sons of disobedience, but that we're, all, that we're children of wrath. Like, hey, good morning, guys. You're a bunch of children of wrath. And I just want you to know that. Like, I, this is heavy stuff. It's hard stuff to, to talk about. We don't want this to be true. But again, Paul uses very relational term here to call us children. And, but who, what we're close to in this context is not Satan, but it's actually the wrath of God. That's what we have a close relationship with. And the reason that we have a close relationship, the reason that we are children of wrath, which again, it's an idiom meaning that we are receiving, like going to receive the wrath of God or the wrath of God is coming to us. And the reason that's the case, guys, is because God is just. And God is a just God. And like we, even in our sinful state, like, we, we want there to be justice. Like, whenever someone has wronged you, you don't want people to get away with that. And when someone has wronged someone you love, you, you want them to have to pay for that, right? Because that, those desires, that sense of justice within all of us, it finds its root in God. Again, we were originally created to bear his image. Some of that stuff is ingrained in us. We have a desire for there to be justice. It's a good thing that God is a just God, except that... And this is a big accept, but accept that we're the ones who committed wrong. And the way that we've committed wrong, again, goes back to what we were created for. We were created to rep- represent God, to bear his image. And yet all of us have gone our own way. And as a result, we have dragged, we have muddied the name of the creator of the universe. We have slandered the name of God. God created us to give people, to give creation a picture of what he's like, and we have badly distorted that. We've slandered his name. We've offended God. And in his justness, he says there's got to be a punishment for that. There's got to be payment for that. It's, It's not okay. And guys, it's not okay. It's not okay that we've done that. However, God isn't just just. He's also loving and merciful. And what follows next is, and you maybe you picked up on it as I was reading this passage, but what follows next in the next verse, after these first three verses where Paul paints a very stark picture of where we are outside of God, outside of Christ, the next verse just blows your mind because what you would think would follow that after he says that we are children of wrath, like with the rest of mankind, what you would think would follow is that he would say, and so God enjoyed sending us all to hell. Like if that was the next verse, then we, it would, it, we wouldn't like it, but it would follow logically, right? Or it, it could say, and, and so God wiped his hands clean of us. He mourned that he ever made mankind and he destroyed us all or he walked away from us all. Like that, again, that would follow logically. Like that would make sense. But guys, what does he say? In the greatest verse, I think perhaps the greatest verse in all of Scripture, the the greatest contrast of what we like should show up uh, of all time, I think, is right here in verse 4. Let me read it. He says, But God, 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let that sink in for a second. But God... Being rich in mercy, another way to say that is to say an undeserved, being rich with undeserved kindness. I love Paul's statement here. With the, with the love by which he has loved us. <laughs> like, guys, God, God is not just just, but he is also loving and merciful. And as a result, he has made a way for us who were dead to be made alive, to be made alive in Christ. But God is still just. And so in order for that to happen, there still had to be a payment. There still had to be wrath, God's justified wrath poured out. And and so our rescue that we desperately needed, we were in a dire situation, perhaps the worst situation that you could possibly imagine. I think, I think that is definitely what Paul was trying to paint in the first three, three verses here. He says, this is the worst situation ever, and yet you have, be, you have been saved. You have been rescued, but that rescue has come at an incredible cost. It has come at an incredible cost, but amazingly, it's not a cost that we, the ones being rescued, had to pay. It's at a cost of the rescu- that the rescuer had to pay. And guys, this is, this is the story. This is the story that Jesus, God the Son, enters earth and lives the life that we've all failed to live. The life that was perfect. The life that was a perfect picture of what God is like and his character and everything that Jesus did is what the Father would have done. And so we're in this perfect picture of what God is. And then yet, Jesus living the perfect life goes to the cross in our place and dies the death that we deserve to die. And God's wrath is poured out on Jesus. And Jesus, the Son of God, becomes the Son of disobedience on the cross so that we could become sons and daughters of obedience. Jesus, the, the Son of God, becomes the child of wrath on the cross so that we could become the children of God. And Jesus takes our condemnation so that we can become adopted children of God. Guys, this is amazing. This is an amazing rescue. This is, this is, like, you just, I can't put it into words. Like, to talk about, like, but we're going to spend all of eternity praising God for this, for what Jesus did here. Paul says it this way in verse 6. He says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. And basically, this is a, an interesting metaphor that is kind of lost on us on this day and age, but at, at the people that Paul is writing, this makes perfect sense because they understood in ancient times, like whenever there was a, a hero had a major victory on the battlefield, 
you know, the conquering uh, commander or whatever, and it is just, he just, you know, huge, huge victory for his, his city or state. When he, when he returns home, he got to come back and sit at, the, sit at the right hand of the king, at the right hand of the throne. Like, he had the, the position of honor. And so, with Jesus, with the, when the ancients are reading this, they're thinking, okay, yeah, like that makes sense. Jesus had the greatest victory of all. He conquered death and sin. So when he returns to the Father, he takes the, the seat at the right hand of God, the, the seat of honor. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is where Paul takes it here because he says that, that that is what Christ has, but then he says that we are raised up, that we are also seated with Christ. What in the world? How do we deserve that? We don't deserve that. And they're right. We don't deserve that. But that's the beauty of being in Christ. Like this, is, this is what's so amazing. Like when the identity statement that's in this passage, when Paul says, like, we are alive in Christ, that we were dead, but now we are alive, what he's saying is, like, we have the same resume as Jesus. We are, in, like, positionally Legally, we're in Christ. So everything that Christ has done, it's as if we have done, we have done it as well. That's how incredible this grace is. And so when Christ is raised up and seated in the, in the most honorable position in the universe, we are there as well. That's how the Father sees us and welcomes us. The Father, God the Father, sees us in Christ. And so we get the welcome that Christ gets. We get the seat that Christ gets because Christ took the seat. He took the place of what we should have gotten. It's grace. That is grace. That is amazing. And Paul moves on. That's exactly what he says. He says, verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For... <laughs> Are you capturing this? Are you getting this? Guys, this is a free gift to us. For anyone who is in here today is, is, is bought into one of the lies of this world. Such a prominent lie. That is that you have to do something to receive God's acceptance. You, that you have to do something. You have to jump through certain hoops. You have to live a good life. You have to be a certain kind of type of morality. Like in order for God to accept you. If that's what you believe, then you need to hear that that is not what the Bible teaches. Like Paul is making it incredibly clear in this passage. Like, we're, like you're dead. Outside of Christ, you're dead. You, you can't do anything good to cause God to accept you. It's impossible. But there's good news. There's great news. And that is that you don't have to. You don't have to because Jesus, God the Son, already did everything for you. And so you don't have to do something in order for God to accept you. You just look to the one who has already done everything for you. Jesus, Jesus Christ, God the Son. And it's through faith that you're saved. All by grace. And my prayer is like even today, if that's something you've wrestled with, like give, give that over. 
And just say to God, like you can do it even right now between you and God. You can just say, God, I believe that. Like, save me. I can't do it myself. Save me. And he will. In fact, he has. And forever at this point on, you can know you're a child of God, no longer a child of wrath. The other thing that, that's worth mentioning here is that when he says, when Paul says, like, that, that none of us shall boast, like, guys, we, we all want to, like, we all have a tendency to want to boast in things. We have something in us that causes us to feel like we have to find something that, that proves our worth or our value. I love Rocky in the first Rocky movie. Whenever, uh, if y'all remember, he's, fought, he's fighting Apollo Creed, the champ. And uh, Adrian is talking to him and is like, why are you going to do this? And she's worried about his health and his, maybe his reputation. Like thinks he's going to get like, just annihilated in the ring. And, and Rocky says this great line. He says, I got to do this to prove to myself that I'm not a bum. I got to prove to myself I'm not a bum. And guys, if we're honest... Like, I'll just speak for myself. I, don't, I guess I can't speak for you, but like for me personally, like I, I carry with this, me this, this gnawing question that, that, that says, like, am I just a bum? What do, I have to, what do I have to offer? How do I know I am somebody? How do I know I have some kind of worth? And I think that that question drives so much of what we do. And we, we look to our grades or our morality or our, our bank account or our job position or our family or our kids to, to find something that can prove that we're not a bum. And, and Rocky says, that if, I could just, if I could just go the distance with the champ, I don't have to beat him, but if I could just go the distance with the champ, then I'll know, myself, I'll know I'm not a bum and I can rest in that. My identity can be found in that. I can prove to me and anyone else once for all that I am somebody if I could just do that. And guys, we do that with all of those things because that is exhausting. Because those are all things that we have to achieve. They're all things that we have to perform for. They're all, they're all things that we have to clamor and try to, try to ascertain. And, and, and sometimes we go after something and we fall short of it. And we're left with like, I guess I am a bum. Or sometimes we get it. But then when after getting it, we spend all of our life trying to hold on to it because it's always seemed to try to get away from us. Or sometimes we do grab onto it and then it, we realize it doesn't actually answer the question. It's not enough. I've got to find something else. And guys, that's a, that's a clamoring, exhausting kind of life. Driven by the question, am I somebody? Because we got to find those things to boast in. Because what boasting is, what it is, it's more than bragging. Boasting is the thing that gives you the confidence to face something hard. Like in ancient times, they would boast before they could go into battle. Because they all knew they were going to probably die. I mean, if you look, you're like, I'm going to run into, like, what's going to cause them to run into that battle? Well, they would sit there and they would boast. They would boast. They would say, we've got, the, we've got iron chariots and they just have wooden chariots. And we've got 10,000 people and they have 7,000 people. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they run into battle and they die. But uh, they, like, that's uh, confident. Boasting is what gives you the confidence to face something hard. Well, guys, when you look at these things, you think, well, I've got, I've got this nice car. Or I've got great kids. Or I've got this position. Like this confidence to prove I'm somebody. Face something hard, guys. But all those things we boast in, they, they wear us out. Paul says here, we don't have to boast anymore. 
He says, we've been given a free gift. It's by grace that you've been saved. And as a result, we can rest in that. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, 14, he says, I mean, Galatians 6, 14, he says, look, I'm not going to boast in anything except for the cross. So I don't need anything else to boast in. Just this, because guys, this is what the cross does. It tells you that you're not a bum. It answers the question of our heart. And you don't have to do something to prove it. You just look at what Jesus has done to know with absolute certainty. You have incredible value. You have incredible worth. God of the universe, God the Son, died for you. That you could be rescued. That you could be saved. You matter to God. You matter much to God. You are not a bum that's worth nothing. You are, the, you, you are the crown of creation. You were made to image God. And so God, when you failed to do it, he didn't abandon you, but he came after you. And he rescued you. And even though it would cause him his life, though it would cause him to be separated from the Father and to have the wrath of God poured out on him, he went willingly because you matter to God. Rest in that. If you rest in that, it will change your life. And guys, that's what happens. The last part of the great rescue story is that our life is changed forever. I mean, look at how Paul ends this passage. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this term that he uses, workmanship, it's the Greek word poema where we get our word poem from. And basically it just means that we are God's masterpiece. We're his work of art. How great is our salvation? Read verse three, read verses one through three, and then read verse 10. It'll blow you away. How do we go from being children of wrath to being God's work of art created in Christ Jesus' stupid works? Because we've got a great savior. And he can change our lives. Guys, I have so many stories of a girl being saved out of sex slavery and then uses the rest of her life to save other girls from sex slavery. Or a boy or girl being adopted and then growing up and running an orphanage to help other kids that were in his or her spot. Or a child who had a heart condition and is saved by a doctor and grows up as a result, wanting to be a doctor so he can or she can save others. As the best kind of rescues are the ones that change your life and cause you to want to spend your life rescuing as a result as well. Well, guys, that's, that's this life. That's this story. That's the story. And God has good works for you. If you're in Christ Jesus, then God has good works for you to do, and you don't have to do those good works to be in Christ Jesus, to be saved. You do those because you already are. You already are. Because it's freely been given to you, but you've been so moved by how you've been rescued that you decide to partner with God to help rescue others. And guys, this is why we planted this church, Midtown Church. We're here because of this. We're here because we've been rescued. We're here because we didn't deserve it, but God rescued us. And so we want to join with God in trying to help others know 
that God has also come to rescue them. We're here to see the day when every man, woman, and child in, in Austin hears the gospel from a person that loves them. That they hear that there's a God who loves them and has come to save them. There's good works for us to do, and there's lots of good works for each of us to do, but if you're a part of this church, this is one of them. And let us join together in light of how we've been rescued to rescue others, to point them to the great rescuer, our God, our Father, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, our God. We're going to end our time with communion and with worship because this is worth praising God over, isn't it? This is the greatest story ever, and it's a true story. It's your story, and it's my story if you're in Christ. And so um, as the service pass out the elements, what I want you to think about is going back to um, these first three verses and going back to that identity statement that outside of Christ, we are children of wrath. But we, what we need to remember, guys, and what we are remembering in taking communion is that Jesus' blood was spilled, his body was broken because he took on the wrath of God for us. Oftentimes in Scripture, the wrath of God is, is spoken of as, as, a, as a cup. If you read Revelation, you see there's all these cups of God's wrath that are poured out. It's interesting that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took a cup, and he said, this, this cup is the cup of a new covenant. And he was providing a new covenant for us, a new way of God relating to us relating to us based on what Jesus would do for us, not based on what we do for God. The reason that God would relate to us based on a new covenant is because Jesus was going to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. That's why his body was going to be broken for us and his blood was going to be spilled for us. And guys, this morning, as you take communion, meditate on that. You are no longer, if you are in Christ, you're no longer a child of wrath. Because Christ became a child of wrath. So that you could become the children of God. When you're ready on your own, eat the bread and take the cup. And let's praise our God.